Hey, welcome back to season two of Entrepreneur. A little bit different episode this time. We've got someone from inside our business joining us as a guest, my really good friend Peleg Bartfeld, who's president and CFO of the business. And you know, Peleg and I actually go go way back to before he joined the company. Let's just start with a, a high level background on you, Peleg. Just talk about how you got into business and finance and like your career path to this point. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I'm glad I made the cut for this go around. So I come at this from the investment side of the equation. So I spent about 10 years in institutional money management, focusing on financial services and real estate. We had sort of a unique investment philosophy in that you know, when you were in charge of a certain area, you would both cover really small cap stocks and really large cap stocks. You kind of had a, a full lay of the land. And that gave me a lot of exposure to growing startup, entrepreneurial financial services company. And over that span of time, you get an experience with, uh, you know, the business models that work and the business models that don't work so well. And you also get some really interesting management meetings where you run through best practices, uh, you run through different people's philosophies. And after doing that for 10 years, I kind of got a sense that I'd like to try something more on the corporate management side. And so I joined Merchant Growth as the CFO and, and Chief Risk Officer. Been doing that for uh, five years now. So focused heavily on the the finance and accounting side, but also heavily on the risk, underwriting, credit side as well. It's been a really interesting few years. Yeah, so you've been deep into numbers for a long time, which is obviously a skill set being utilized heavily now as we look at risk and our scoring models and stuff in our business. You talked about learning about what worked and didn't when you were analyzing stocks in the financial services space. Maybe shed a little bit of light on that. What did you find were the most common pitfalls and maybe success factors? Yeah, I think that when it comes to growing a small business, sometimes we lose track of return on capital. Are the decisions that we're making, are we redeploying capital in a way that's going to grow the business over time, as opposed to just focusing purely on things like uh, revenue growth, which is a model that you see more so in the pure tech side. When you're in the financial service space specifically, you really have to get that return on capital piece correct. And you have to have an overall assessment that the business model is sustainable and competitive because you're, you're often competing against much larger, much better capitalized institutions. And so in the tech world, there's this sort of presumption that you can go and you can sort of slay the beast, uh, taking over a new market, things like that. It just doesn't work that well at all in financial services because banks have such a significant regulatory advantage. They have a significant deposit base that gives them cheap dollars to deploy. And you're just very unlikely to succeed if you go up against the model. So one of the you know key tenets of our investment philosophy at the company I used to work for is that you really never invest in a financial service company who is going directly head-to-head competitive with you know the big banks, especially here in Canada, where they have a really dominant position. And so what you want is a really shrewd management team that has found a niche where they're not directly competing, where the economics make sense through and through. So what they earn through redeploying the capital, minus their losses, minus what it costs to bring in the customers, how all those line up. And it doesn't require this massive growth trajectory economies of scale like you would with a tech company to make it work. 
if you can find these reasonable niches where you can grow into mid-sized companies and you really know your business and you know how the numbers work through and through, those tend to be the companies that succeed. Whereas if you have more of a sales-oriented approach where it's just about growing share and you really don't have a good understanding of the economics of the business, it just doesn't, doesn't work really well in financial services, right? And it says like confidence is so important because in this business, you're essentially taking dollars from one group who want you to give them a return and you're trying to redeploy it and give it to other individuals who have productive uses for it. And you really need confidence on both sides of that equation to make it work. And if you're just purely in a, a promotional vein and the numbers don't work, eventually the confidence breaks, you lose the money from the investors and, and the models don't work. And that's typically why these types of businesses would fail. And so getting the business model right is obviously paramount and has that kind of an additional layer to it than it does in a lot of other business models when it comes to financial services specifically. So let's start shifting into the discussion of the day, which is risk modeling and automation and kind of the appropriate amount or use of technology where it should be focused and so on. You know, I think that plays a big role in in getting the model right. It's a significant line item. It, it affects both your losses and, and your operating expense ratios. So that's, that's key in the whole thing. So assuming you found a credit category that is not head-to-head with the banks, but you're finding kind of a niche that's outside of what the banks typically do, how would you go about building out that risk function and maybe just talk about our experience and how we've done it? And obviously, there's phases to this. You know, When you start a brand new fintech, it's going to look a little different than a number of years down the road. So talk about your thoughts on that piece of the business model and how to get that right. It's a great question. And you you touched on a point that's often not really touched on, which is that when you build a risk team that's trying to minimize your losses, there's a cost associated with that. And if the cost associated with that risk team, data team, all the science and technology is higher than what you're saving on the loss side, it's actually not even a good idea. And that there's ultimately a layer of marginal returns from getting better and better at risk and it costs more and more and often it gets really expensive to get it perfect and so if you have a purely tech-minded approach to this problem i'm going to create the most gold-plated system it's going to be so accurate it's going to capture uh, every single default that could ever come through the cost of that system is going to way offset the actual savings on, on the default side And so the first question is, okay, how accurate do we want to be relative to the cost to build the team? Because the first stages of any risk underwriting filtering model, like you're going to be able to get probably half of the way there with just good intuition from experienced credit professionals. So people who have done the lending before, they're going to be able to do just with human power and experience a good deal of filtering of the obvious thing. And in fact, as an example, if you take someone who's only loosely aware, you'll be able to pick out stuff that you don't want to lend to. There are certain situations, certain signs of distress that are so obvious. You know, that's your bottom 25% of a risk model right there. And so you kind of start with human intuition and experience, and then you gradually start layering on top of that. And those first few layers, they're actually, they're very cost effective. You're getting a lot of the things you don't want to fund that the things that really generate risk, you're getting them out of the way without needing anything very advanced. And then you're going to start layering in more advanced techniques, right? So you start with individuals, and then there are basic levels of pattern recognition. When an applicant comes in with this given data points, on average, that leads to a higher loss rate. Okay, so let's screen on that basis. 
And then you get more advanced and you start using correlations, linear regressions, basic things that are still quite tangible for human minds, where you say, okay, you take a credit score and you, you know, look at that relationship with, with losses and you then incorporate that into uh, your scoring model. But what, what happens is that when you're dealing with richer and richer data, you'll start to hit a point where human intuition is going to fall short because the, the, the way that the data interacts, the different contexts, is uh, eventually you're going to need to use more advanced data science techniques, AI, machine learning, neural nets, things like that. And then it's a question of, okay, well, how hard do we want to push before this isn't worth it anymore? Because often there's this sweet spot where you're getting 80, 90% of the way there. But that last 10% is just the level of, of brain power from a data science team is just is just way too high to be uh, worth it. And you're just not going to get the cost savings about it. So I think our philosophy has been to get to that 80 to 90% level, but do it in a really cost effective way. I was at a conference last year and one of the speakers that caught my attention when he was talking about bias in lending, mostly in, in the US, mostly in regards to mortgages and stuff like that and, and racial bias. And he said, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, AI, you know, it's AI doing it. Like, how can you say there's bias, whatever. But he was talking about the inputs that going into building that AI technology that were fundamentally biased from the beginning. So that's on the consumer side that was, you know, it's pretty kind of clear cut. Do you see something that's sort of equivalent to that in business? Do, do you see AI as more of a less bias approach or, or, you know, improving on the bias? Yeah, so if your approach is to just run AI and to have it say, okay, just do the screening for us, and you don't have good understanding or good control of the model, you're going to have a whole lot of biases in different directions. And it's really not the way that you want to be building a model. You have to have this interaction between a data science team and experienced credit professionals. And you really should try to have a model that you understand exactly why it's, why it's discerning in, in different ways, how it's bucketing things. Uh, why it expresses certain relationships. This is really important in our category because you're working with less overall data because there are much less small businesses than there are overall consumers. And so when you have those smaller data sets, the likelihood of, of biases or just relationships that are noise is just very, very high. So you can't just have a thing where it says, hey, in this circumstances, this type of business with this type of ratio in the bank statement, oh, that's a very high loss rate. If you can't explain that intuitively, you don't want to use it, right? So you, you do have to be really careful with that. And you have to ultimately say, okay, for all the inputs that are leading us to make a certain decision from a filtering perspective, I have to be able to explain intuitively why that relationship exists. I can't just say, well, the data shows it. I don't think that's that's a very dangerous way to run a model, especially one where you're not using, you know, billions and billions of, of data points. Yeah. And I wonder in terms of the the AI technology, and Dave always talks about how what you know what happens in the consumer space eventually happens in small business. And I can kind of see it happening there because like you're saying, we're not you know, it's not formal financial statements and all this kind of stuff. It, you know, it's mostly cash flow lending. You can build something around that. You know, when it cuts to more of the commercial side of it, do you think that there's just way too many variables, way too many sort of contextual things for AI? Or do you, do you see that, you know, AI being able to get to a point where it can really take into consideration all the external factors? You're talking about like big credit limits, big companies? Yeah, even just commercial lending, even for SMEs, for example, right? You know, the way you lend to that is completely different than how we lend to small businesses here today. And I can sort of see the AI in the small business side 
being pretty useful because of you know it's it's cash flow analysis and so on commercial side there's a lot more that goes into it and you know i'm just wondering you know how much confidence do you have in in ai's ability to really take in contextually all the things around a business there is a lot to work with and the more and the richer the data the better but you sort of touched around another key element behind the issue between trying to get the perfect model so like one issue is that it's, it requires a lot of effort and very large teams and it's not economical but the other issue is that extracting that much data from the customer could create a really negative customer experience right simply by making the application too long as as one basic example Right. And so you definitely have a limitation behind there could be all this data, which you could get from the customer, which could make your models way more accurate. But it's just really inconvenient for the customer and you just have a, a negative experience. So, so over time, that'll improve, too, though, with the integrations. Yeah. So but but it's already. One, one of the reasons that AI in uh, risk decisioning has become so much more important is because, yeah, now we have these more automated connections, which allow you to access that data more conveniently. And if you are accessing it more conveniently, then there is a lot that you can do with it. And you really need that AI power set to make use of that information. You take a basic example of um, like a business bank statement over a long period of time, over say a couple of years, that's gonna have thousands and thousands of transaction lines with different description tags. And then within there, there are sort of an infinite way that you can parse that data. But to just take a basic example, think of all the different ratios that you can glean from months and months of transaction bank data across tens of thousands of, of applicants. Human is just not going to be able to do anything but the most basic types of, of ratios. But if you run these neural nets, you can go in and you can find certain ratios that are predictive. But the key element is that you don't just run with it. You go and you say, okay, well, the ratio of this specific debt service item to the person's revenue has been highly predictive. Like, can we intuitively explain why that would be? And if you can go to your risk team and you can say, does it make sense that this would be negative and this would be positive and why? And they say, yeah, that does make sense here. Then you can use that and you can create a powerful model. The other thing you can do is that your risk team themselves could have a hypothesis around Cash flow volatility, for example, if the bank balance is moving a lot versus very stable, that seems intuitive that that would be negative. Can you go and you test that for us? So that would be another key area where your data team is going to leverage that connection with experienced credit professionals, right? I want to actually just go back to something you said earlier and just kind of riff on that a little bit more because I thought it was actually quite insightful for anyone listening who is an entrepreneur considering being an entrepreneur in the space which is the point that in the early days, the credit professional is really doing a lot of the lifting. And then, you know, over time, it makes more sense to refine it and start to invest in data science. That's quite interesting, because I think a lot of or certainly some folks that start ventures in the space, they want to start with that risk model. They think that's so key to the pitch and to raising equity dollars. It's like, hey, I've got this great risk model. It's like where you want to start. And they think that's just so key and foundational. But really, What's actually more foundational is just, I found a lending category that's good. And mm -hmm. then as far as tech investment, you know, you really just want to be investing in the things that just make basic workflows more automated and faster and feed into the underwriters. I remember like years ago getting a car lease and I asked the person at the dealership, how many people are underwriting these leases? And they said it was like, I think it's three people for the whole country. And I got an answer back pretty fast. And I got my car leased. And I thought that was interesting. It was like clearly very manual. 
and just three people sitting in an office somewhere handling an entire country for like an entire brand of a vehicle, right? I think it's less about operational efficiency and more about like getting that more refined risk decision that really just improves your overall business economics. But it really shouldn't be the starting point and shouldn't be the main reason why you're a financeable venture in the early days, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, 100%. There's sometimes this philosophy around building a really good credit model that's data-driven, AI, neural net, all the fancy stuff. There's this belief that there's a holy grail at the end of the day where you make the most perfect model that's absolutely perfect at predicting. Because if you have enough data and enough history, you eventually get a model that's so accurate that you'll never fund a single customer that defaults. That's a myth for, I guess, maybe a couple reasons. but. The main one is that if that was theoretically possible, you would need to extract all of this data that you just don't have access to. Like, I guess, theoretically, if you got every single piece of data about a business and every single piece of data about a person throughout their life, that maybe you'd be able to find these relationships that perfectly predict uh, this element of their personality and they went to this high school and these different things. And you can create a beautiful mind that that is 100% predictive, but that's just not... It's going to be biased in that one for sure. Yeah, a lot of a lot of bias there for sure. So that holy grail just doesn't exist. And that a lot of these models are 80% of their effectiveness is exactly the same as everybody else's model, Right. And so it's more of an, an idealism that's driving that as opposed to practicality. And what, what you mentioned is exactly right. If you take that desire to create a really good tech offering and you put that all into sort of process efficiency and creating a really good applicant experience and things like that and, and managing your, your costs down, then the overall economics of that financial service business model is just going to be way more attractive. I think the unsophisticated equity investor in financial services would see that risk model slide and think, oh, I've got something that's scalable and that's attractive to me as an equity investor. But really, like I said earlier, with the three people underwriting an entire country's worth of leases, that's usually not your bottleneck, right? It's like, it's all the other processing stuff and customer support stuff and all that type of stuff. You can actually review a ton of credit with a small team. And so really... I'm not saying the risk model is not important. Obviously, it is, and we invest heavily in it in our business. But it's more about just improving that risk decision and that making that calculation of, is it worth making that investment to get that incremental improvement? It's more about that than it is about scalability. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think we have a very good risk model, and I think we have a, an excellent data science team that's like extremely effective. And we are at a size and a point where you want a very decent risk model, but you always want to acknowledge is this extra layer of effort, extra layer of cost actually going to move us forward? Is it actually necessary? And then there's a, there's a set of where rather than focusing on, okay, how do we make the model more effective, efficient, you more targeted towards like, how do we allow for more automation, which is definitely an area of investment, which is worth it, which is how do we get it so that this needs as little manual intervention as possible? And that's definitely an area that's, that's worth investing that allows you to scale. And that creates a much better customer experience as well. And the credit decisioning engine that we have has leveraged since they've started the company over a span of whatever, 13 years or 14 years. How does a startup come up and say, hey, we built this you know, decision model, the credit decision model you know, from scratch? You know, are you just using other people's public data? Like, I don't understand how a company can just say that as a startup. Because you know, for us, it was built over our own data over X amount of years, rather than just sort of something that we, you know, we're just making assumptions or we're taking other people's data. So I don't know, I'm, I'm confused as to how someone can do that. 
Yeah, so a lot of the time you are, you're often purchasing large data sets in similar categories and building your models on that, which is not great. It's okay, but it's not great. But the other thing is that there's just so much information asymmetry between the realm of data scientists and the realm of people investing or working in fintech. And oftentimes it's just the veneer of as soon as you dive into these things, it all sounds great. It sounds very fancy, but once you become familiar with what's actually being done, it might not move the needle as much as, as people think, right? It's a lot of the same stuff often that's out there, and it's mostly being pitched because it, it sounds good, I would say, especially in that early stage, because you're right, like if you don't have a rich data set in your specific category, it's just not as good and there's less that you can do with it. There are certain things, yeah, that you can do with it, but it's mostly just a pitch at that point, I feel. And a lot of time when we've looked at at companies that are in that sort of startup phase and we start poking around, okay, well, how did you get this data? How do you construct your risk model? But like, again, it comes down to some relatively simplistic but effective techniques. They're good. They, they work. It's not like the, the risk models are are ineffective. They're just not at a, at a stage where they can utilize the more advanced techniques, right? Yeah. We've talked about how in, in certain circumstances, the data science piece and AI and, and so forth can actually be, you know, a little bit maybe overrated. But let's talk about a couple of things. First, let's elaborate on one more limitation, I think, that model-based approaches have, which is that they're based on historical data and things are obviously constantly evolving and credit is a complicated world. So I know you have a, like strong views on this, Peleg, around how models work with humans. So maybe talk about that. And then let's just, let's talk about the great things that data science can do here. And in particular, in recent years, what, from a high level standpoint, have we done to really improve our models? And how do we kind of see that improvement, track it? And how do yeah, we think yeah. it might improve in the future? So on the first point around, is AI overrated? I definitely wouldn't say that. I think it's extremely powerful. The, the specific issue is its application for lending in categories that are very niche, because you just don't have a lot of data. As soon as you're in a category where you're dealing with millions of lines of data or billions of lines of data, it's incredibly powerful. It's very effective. It's very leading edge. But the problem is, is you take the chic of that world and try to apply it in these niche categories. There's a lot of pitfalls that you can make. But if you understand those pitfalls, it's still really important and really effective. I definitely think it's it's a, a key element in our success in terms of our adjudication engine. But we, we just understand its limitations when working in niche and, and small data sets. And the other point that you were sort of making is in this specific world, like you want to be building a feedback loop between experienced credit professionals with their natural intuition, which is valuable, and the data models, adjudication models that you are building. They should understand your adjudication models. They should understand why it's filtering certain deals, why it likes certain deals, why it doesn't like other deals. And, and they should agree with those intuitions. And then you want to have an ongoing interaction between the two over time in that areas of disagreement between a human and a machine, those are excellent opportunities for sort of synthesis, where if a human on average likes a certain type of deal and the machine doesn't, well, either there's a natural bias that the human has that provides great feedback for those credit professionals that, hey, like even though we typically think this situation is bad, it's actually not as bad as you think. So let's update our understanding there. Or the machine is not optimized in a certain way. So you can go and get the machine to investigate a certain thing that 
the cred professionals find important. There might be some circumstance where they say, oh, this type of company in this situation, we really don't like it. You can go and you can have your AI specifically dive into that point and then integrate that in your model. And that's really powerful. And you run that on an ongoing basis. In that case, your holy grail is where the machine is making the exact same. There's no disagreement eventually. It's not, that's a, a theoretical ideal, but that's an, a great circumstance because that allows you to automate more and more decisions, right? Yeah. What about just changing environment? You totally understand why the machine is liking this deal, but the environment's changed and you know that we shouldn't like this deal. Right. I guess that's I guess that's a disagreement point, but it's a it's a specific type of disagreement because uh, it's not like the model was right before, but it's just things have changed. Yeah, you have an issue with a lack of data in terms of breadth, and then you have an issue with a lack of data sort of over time, where you just don't have enough context historically to really have full confidence. This is another really big limitation, especially in sort of lending categories, where you know at best you're collecting data often only back to the '90s. And there's just been so many historical economic cycles and your model may totally break in those cases, which then again, you need to have that credit intuition to say, okay, is this a universal or is this time cycle specific and make those adjustments and ensure that you're not overemphasizing points that are very cycle specific. Like this specific factor happens to work because we've been in a low interest rate environment for a really long time, or that's where the historical data set has been, but we just don't want to use it. We want to shut it off because that like that's a unique historical context which may not continue in the future you want to remove that bias so that's really important but you really need the human intuition there to address that context and to be asking that question like which of these relationships are universal many of them are they they don't matter the but some chunk of them will be based on where you are in an economic cycle and you want to sort of de-emphasize those in your model yeah so what are some of the things that we've done in the last few years that you think have been positive impact on the model. And let's talk about some of the fancy techniques and things that you know can really improve the accuracy of your decisions. We've begun to integrate more and more like much richer types of data over time. So starting to harvest some of the relationships out of bank statements and transactions and using more advanced data science techniques to sort of extract those relationships, like using more advanced ratios bucketing certain types of transactions together in certain ways, looking at their growth, looking at their relationships and finding these more insightful predictive trends within bank statements that point towards distress or point towards success. That's been more and more powerful. And this all stems from the ability to access digitized bank data quickly and efficiently without it being negative for the customer experience and and accessing longer data sets attached to that. And then you have these other buckets. It's not just bank statements. You have personal credit data. You have applicant-specific data. You have some social media online data. And so you can also now start to look at interactions between those different large categories as well, as opposed to just saying in this bucket, this is bad, in this bucket, this is bad. You can look at how those two interact. And it's really the interactions where you need powerful data science techniques, right? Like you can take something like very basic, like, uh, you know, credit score, you know, higher is good, lower is bad. Like that's easy for a human to just create basic bucketing around it. But if you take certain debt ratios or things like that, like, yes, those might also have a natural understanding of like, 
of like higher is worse and, and lower is is better. But then you have industry specific contexts, which are important, especially in small business where you're dealing with a lot of different micro industries where actually that debt ratio is good for that type of business in that area. And it's actually not good in this other type of industry. You need more advanced techniques to start to, to discern that. And then you would can, can further sort of contextualize that with, with geography. And once you add these more and more di dimensions, the more and more you're going to need sort of um, more computing power and more advanced data science techniques to properly integrate those. And that's where we can get more and more accurate using the existing data sets. Like you mentioned something that is uh, near and dear to my heart, which is accessing digitized data, data right? And to me, that is open banking. In Canada, we have our limitations with that. In other countries, it's it's a lot more advanced. What are the impacts of, I guess, if we were able to get to a point where we can access this kind of data, you know, how much better would it be for the client in small business or in consumer and otherwise? Like, I guess the question is, what collateral damage is happening, especially in the improvement of AI, because of the not being able to access this digitized data? It's really important. It's an incredible source of friction that's feels mostly unnecessary. It's substantially easier to make good lending decisions when you have access to bank data. And if you have access to it on a real-time basis without the friction, without an unpleasant customer experience, it's really night and day. It's super effective. And yeah, it can be a bit frustrating that we don't have it here in Canada and it's not like what they have in many European countries. Hopefully that that changes over time. But yeah, it would it would be a lot more convenient, I think, for the customer. And everybody ends up making better decisions when you have more information to make those decisions. So restricting information, I don't think, is a, a great way to go. I think it will probably have an oversized impact in terms of the development of AI, specific to the financial industry in Canada. You know, AI can still be built in many ways in Canada, but when it comes to the financial industry, these regula regulatory restrictions are are definitely going to impact it going forward. Yeah, I think I'd probably just quickly mention like what I think is like the important societal benefit to accurate credit decision making, right? Which is just capital is getting reallocated where it should be and where it deserves to be. And that is hugely beneficial and it reduces the cost of capital for borrowers that actually deserve the funds. So you know, without that, you're just less efficient. And yeah, there's a yeah. lot more waste happening, right? Earlier, we talked about how you can get a fair bit of the way with, with humans in the early days and so forth, and then the value of as you scale, getting that extra refinement. I think, however, to get into like a fully automated environment, right, where you're getting a decision within seconds, obviously, there's no way to do that without advanced data science. And I think that is what has allowed us to build our new product, Tabit, which only functions with that capability of an automated decision, where at point of sale, in a business-to-business -business transaction, a credit offer can be made to the buyer of whatever service or good that they're buying from their suppliers. So maybe just talk a little bit about how we have leveraged our model to build Tabit, essentially, Peleg. So it comes back to getting to a level of confidence in your adjudication model relative to what your human underwriters, the decisions that they would make, that the convergence is high enough where you're okay to let your adjudication model sort of go out alone, subject to certain risk constraints, obviously. Once that accuracy is high enough, then you begin testing it. 
and you see, okay, where are the deviation points? Where is this model rejecting deals that a human would approve in and proving deals that a human would reject? And how significant are those errors? And once those errors are small enough where they're relatively similar and the deviations largely wash, like it's okay for the model to make certain mistakes because it's also alleviating certain mistakes that humans are making. The key is that it doesn't have a large like bias in, in the negative direction. And usually once you get good enough, it'll actually have a bias in the positive direction. So there will be small unforced errors, but they're offset by its sort of higher level of intelligence in the other direction. So once that model is good enough, then you can deploy it in a fully automated setting. And then you just need really good monitoring on it. Is it being exploited in any given way? Does it have any biases in certain directions that are emerging? And to do that, the reason we're able to do that is you need a short-term lending product to do. Obviously, if you're putting out five-year loans, that's not going to work because you're not really going to see the result of its decisions fast enough. But with a buy now, pay later product where you're typically less than a year and often less than six months, you have quick enough feedback and the dollar figures are low enough that you have a, a great sort of testing ground for a purely automated approach. And then on the other key fraud mitigating measures by doing a digitized connection to bank, you off the bat eliminate a large chunk of the potential fraud. And that's actually magnified in small business versus a consumer because accessing someone's uh, small business account is a lot more more sort of difficult. And generally, if you're committing those types of frauds, it's just a much higher hurdle to pass. So they tend to be more concentrated in the consumer space. So off the bat, you're eliminating most of the fraud through those digitized connections. And then you're using your historical fraud experience to inform that model and detect other sort of sources of fraud. So if you're able to mitigate the fraud and you're able to have a high accuracy model that doesn't have these negative biases in one direction or another, then you can just fully put through volume as long as it's relatively short term and not very large ticket. You can run that and continue to enhance it by monitoring over time. Yeah, and you, you mentioned it just now, small ticket. Of course, one of the easiest ways to kind of get comfortable with going more automated with the model is just to keep your fully automated approval up to only a certain dollar amount, right? And the Tabit, we're, we're starting relatively small with that. And as we get a bit more confidence, we'll go up. The other thing too is just that you're only fully automating a portion of the funnel. Another portion of the funnel is going to get declined. Then there's another portion of the funnel that'll actually go into a pending status because there's something that's just not quite perfect, right? That's another yeah. key thing to like operationalize one of these, right? Yeah, another good point, which is that when you're creating an automating model, you're automating the decision, but you're also automating, you're automating an approval decision and you're automating a automation decision, as in you're automating the machine's ability to say like, I don't want to automate this or I do want to automate this. And that gives you way more breathing room because you can put in a set of middle criteria that are just say it doesn't look enough like our standard type of applicant in these dimensions. I don't know whether it's good or bad. I have an opinion, but just for good measure, I'm going to say like, let's have a human look at this. And so you're not actually making a approved decline decision. You're making a, to be safe, let's have a human look at this decision. So that's like a separate layer of intelligence that the model will have that's really important. Over time, you can kind of shrink that, right? As the model gets more effective, has more testing, you can sort of shrink the category of, okay, let's have a human look at this with the goal of eventually minimizing it to be relatively negligible, right? All right, Pelik. So to wrap this up, we always have a nice loaded question for people to make them think a little bit. So you're looking back 10 years from now, what do you 
hope to have seen happen in the AI space. Maybe specifically to fintech, maybe not. If you you know you're interested in AI in sort of a broader scope, but if you look back, what do you hope happens? I hope that the data becomes more open, as open and accessible as possible, that people have good access to their own data, have more sort of sovereignty over their own data, because it just enables better decision making across the board. And Dave was kind of mentioning before that we have sort of mixed thoughts around the concept of sort of data being out there. Obviously, there are privacy issues. People are protective of their data. All that stuff is very important. At the same time, if it's within your control and you can provide it selectively, it just enables different third parties to make more effective decisions. And you want people to make effective decisions with respect to the way that they interact with you, right? You don't want, well, you're having some sort of relationship with another company, third party. You don't want that relationship to have the friction of imperfect information. So as long as it's in your control, I think it's really powerful to provide as much information as possible to allow those effective decisions, right? There's so many negative consequences from systems which make sort of ineffective decisions or decisions that are are muddled, right? I think if we rephrase that question as 50 years out, I think all of us should be answering that we hope we figure out how to ensure AI is benevolent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is um, that point as well. Oh. And just, just watched this uh, movie in theaters, Megan, M3G. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You watch that one? No, I, I heard about it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's quite funny, actually. It's a pretty entertaining um, story of how AI can go wrong. So let's hope that we're still around, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I agree to that for sure. Uh, it's a great conversation, colleague. That was fascinating. Yeah, awesome. Glad to do it. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. And until our next episode, uh, this was Fintrepreneur. <laughs>